one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the great punishment for the prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bought testimony to Jesus. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share any of her sins or receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Hallelujah for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean was given her to wear. I saw heaven standing open. And there before me was a white horse, whose rider was called Faithful and True. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the Bible. Thank you for the book of Revelation. Thank you for these chapters we've just read, Lord, and thank you for the picture it paints for us at the end of Jesus, but also the challenge it depicts in the middle as it talks about the prostitute and the brides describing what's going on in our world today. God, you know everyone here today. You know those who are connecting online, listening to this recording. I thank you, God, that you're with us and you love every person. And I pray just now that you'd speak to us as we turn to the Bible. Open our hearts, open our minds, impact us. God, anyone who doesn't know you today, I pray in your presence they would come to know you. God, in your presence, all things are possible. I ask for sick bodies to be miraculously healed. I ask for people's hearts to be changed, who have become hard-hearted. I ask, God, for situations that are seemed irreparable to be repaired by the power of God. Welcome, Holy Spirit. Come and do your great work among us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's so good to be with you. Welcome to church. Let me add a welcome to Tim's. 
Wow, they're very, very challenging verses. I feel I've been saying that every single week in the last few weeks as we've been going through the book of Revelation. It is an incredible book, uh, but we want to, as a church, just dig into the verses and just let them speak to us. We, w- we want to be a kind of church that we will we'll approach any Bible verse. We don't want to leave out the tough bits of the Bible and just look at the nice bits. We also want to look at the challenging bits, and this is one of those challenging bits, but in the challenge... There is incredible encouragement, so I believe God's going to speak to you. Uh, You know, you are an incredibly privileged people. You are the body of Christ. You are the bride of Christ. You're the church of Jesus Christ. Nothing greater on planet Earth than the church. And we're going to see this picture, this incredible picture of the church displayed for us in these verses today. Uh, I'm going to start, if if you want a a kind of headline, if you want my title today, it's Religion Versus Relationship. You see, I see that the whole of history has actually just been one massive big love story. It's, one, it's been one big romance. Uh, in fact, it's, it's Drew and Naomi's 18-year anniversary today. How cool is that? Where's Naomi? She's left. She's, okay, let's hear for Drew and Naomi. Hey, She's somewhere else just now, but that's romantic. You're sitting here listening to the sermon without your wife on your anniversary. That's great. There was, there was an elderly couple nothing to do with Drew and Naomi. There was an elderly couple, and uh, they'd been dating for many, many years, and the guy managed to pluck up his courage and asked her to, to marry her, him, and, and she said yes. Anyway, that night, he went to sleep. Next morning, he woke up, and because he was getting a bit old, he couldn't remember all the details, so he's thinking, I know I asked her to marry me, but I can't remember what her answer was. So he thought about this for about an hour, trying to figure out what did she say, and eventually, he plucked up the courage and phoned her and said, uh, listen, listen I, I asked you to marry me yesterday, but I can't remember what you said. And she said, oh, I'm so glad you phoned. I remember saying yes to someone yesterday, but I couldn't remember who it was. <laughs> love stories. We love love stories. But the Bible actually is one big love story. History is one big love story. The Bible begins with a wedding, and it ends with a wedding. It begins with the, the God creating mankind in his image, and then there was a marriage in, in early chapters of the book of Genesis, and it concludes, as we've just seen in these verses, with this incredible wedding feast where we, the church, are likened to the brides, and Jesus Christ is the groom, this eternal union between Jesus and his church. Absolutely incredible. Um, and I want to take you on this journey. It starts quite negative, though. It talks about a counterfeit relationship, and it describes this counterfeit relationship by describing the prostitute. So we're seeing a contrast between the prostitute, which is a counterfeit relationship, and the bride, which is the true relationship with God. You could, you could say it's a contrast between false religion and true faith, between religion and relationship. So let's go into the verses, chapter 17, verses 1 to 3. Come and I will show you, this is this vision that John's having, come and I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. Now, just to be clear, when it says great prostitute, it's not saying great prostitute. It's like, isn't she's a good one, all right? It's saying very influential. She's a great prostitute, very influential. With her, the kings of the earth have committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, where I saw, there I saw a woman on a scarlet beast who was covered with blasphemous names and seven heads, and had seven heads and ten horns. So 
it's a very strange analogy. It's a very strange picture. Why would, it, why would we see a prostitute and later on in the chapter see a bride? Well, a prostitute speaks of false religion, whereas the bride speaks of real relationship. It's religion versus relationship. Ever since time began, human beings have been religious. Everywhere you go, people worship. Everyone's a worshiper. Whether they call themselves Christian or whether they, whatever they call themselves, every human being is a worshiper in some form. Since time began, you even find remote tribes in the middle of nowhere, and lo and behold, they're worshiping. That's kind of how it, human beings are wired. In fact, 90% of the human population would call themselves religious in some form or another. Human beings are wired to know God. It's almost like there's something ancient in our souls, a memory, a distant memory of a relationship that was. And that's what the Bible says, that we were created for this relationship with God. But somehow or another, because sin came into the world, we've been alienated from God. And there's, but there's an ancient memory, a, 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 an echo of that relationship. And there's this longing in the human soul. And that's what people are looking for. Pascal, the uh, mathematician and philosopher, the French mathematician and philosopher, he said, there is a God-shaped vacuum in every human heart. There's some longing in every human heart that can only be satisfied when you ultimately connect with God himself. And that's what we're seeing here. And in, in, in the Bible, actually, it likens people's rejection of God and worshiping false gods to adultery. In the Old Testament, all the way through the Old Testament, when God's people, the Israelites, turned away from God and worshipped false gods, God would often call them an adulterous people. Because as far as God was concerned, it's like a relationship you've given up on to jump on board with another relationship. So here we see that same picture being picked up again, describing the prostitute and then the true relationship, the bride. So let's compare the two, the prostitute and the bride. Well, a prostitute has the appearance of relationship, whereas the bride describes authentic relationship. False religion, the prostitute, is there is no ultimate commitment, whereas the bride, the true relationship with, that we can have with God, describes lifelong covenantal relationship. The prostitute is about lust, it's about getting, whereas and that's, and that's false religions. It's about what you can get from God. People become religious. I'll, I'll do good things so God will give me something back. That's religion. But the true authentic relationship that God offers, described by the brides, is describing a giving. And that's what love does. Lust gets, love gives. Tim Keller said it so perfectly when he said this. Religious people find God useful. Christians find God beautiful. Uh, in the year 2000s, a scientist, Dr. William Walsh, studied the strands of hair, um, the remaining strands of hair from Ludwig van Beethoven, the famous composer. And he took these strands of hair from Beethoven's corpse and he did an analysis of these strands of hair to try and find the cause of his death. He discovered that the strands of hair displayed signs that he had 100 times more lead in his body than a normal human being should have. And so this scientist, Dr. William Walsh, concluded that Beethoven, this composer, died of lead poisoning. And as they discovered, well, how would he have died of lead poisoning? Because he died young, age 57, of lead poisoning. How did he die of lead poisoning? They realized his lifestyle. 
he would commonly go to a mineral spa near where he lived. And he went to the mineral spa in order to relax, in order just to uh, get relief from any suffering he was going through. But the irony was this, that the place where he went for relaxation and relief was actually poisoning his system. And this is the truth with false religion. People turn because they've got this inner longing for something, for someone, for this ultimate relationship, and people turn to false religions and false spiritualities. But the irony is that thing they turn to thinking is going to give them that relief actually is poisoning them slowly and ultimately will be their downfall. It's a counterfeit. It's not going to give you the real thing. And that's what false religions and false spiritualities do. Here pictured as the prostitute. And that's definitely, Jesus saw this all the time. Jesus interacting with probably the most religious people on earth. He called them blinds because they had religion, but they didn't have relationship. They, they, they knew a lot of stuff about God, but they didn't know God. Sometimes the hardest people to work with are religious people. You see, irreligious people, they know they ain't got God. But religious people think they've got God. In fact, they've got enough religion to inoculate them from getting the real thing a relationship with God. Who is this prostitute that's been described here in these verses? Well, we're seeing this prostitute riding on a scarlet beast. Now, if you remember earlier chapters of the book of Revelation, Satan attacks God's people, the church, in two ways. Through a political beast that keeps rearing its ugly head through the generations, and also through religious persecution. So very simply, it's those same two pictures again. We see the prostitute representing the religious attack of Satan on the church, riding on the back of the political attack of Satan against the church. The prostitute is in collaboration with the political, the religious and the political systems that are gearing up to undermine God's people on earth. And that's exactly what we see. Down through the generations, the people of God have suffered ultimately by the hand of Satan, but through the means of political regimes and through the means of false teaching and false prophets and false religions. That's constantly been the attack. And it specifically goes on in chapter 17, verse 9, and it says, the seven heads, this is talking about the beast, it says the seven heads are the seven hills on which the woman sits. Seven hills on which the woman sits. Now, there are, I can only think of two cities that are built on seven hills. One is Edinburgh. <laughs> Uh-oh. Okay. Do-do-do-do, right? One is Edinburgh. But actually, the, the city of Seven Hills, the one that's known as the city of Seven Hills, is Rome itself. And that was clearly the illusion here. Because one of the biggest threats to the church when the book of Revelation was written was the incredible, horrible persecution and intimidation that came from Rome at the hand of Nero and many of the other Caesars that followed. This incredible, intense persecution. But it says that this, that this prostitute would ride in collaboration with this political system. Well, what does that mean? Well, let me just give you what I think it means and what I think it's meant then and what I think it means now. So Nero was actually one of several emperors that persecuted the church. Nero tormented Christians. He, he threw them into the Colosseum, let lions loosen them. He crucified them. He burned them at the stake. He did all sorts of horrible things against Christian, Christians. But he was the first emperor of 10 waves of persecution that came from subsequent emperors until an emperor called Constantine. 
And in 312 AD, Constantine, the Roman emperor, had a vision. It was the day before a battle, and he had a vision, and he says in that vision, God appeared to him, showed him the sign of the cross, and told him that by this sign you will conquer. So the next morning he instructed all the military, all the people in his army, to paint the sign of the cross on their shields. And so when they went out to march against their enemy that day, they had the cross on their shields. And they won a huge victory on that day. And that was the moment at which Constantine, a Roman emperor, made a decision to become a Christian. So for the first time, Nero persecuted Christians. And then 10 waves of persecution followed Nero. Now you have an emperor who's a Christian, apparently. That was good and bad. It was good in that all of a sudden persecution stopped. He also gave rights to slaves and to women. And he, he, he helped people and, and he reimbursed people's property that had been confiscated during times of intense persecution. So that was good. But it was bad also because all of a sudden Christianity became a state religion and it killed something. You see, all of a sudden, Emperor Constantine starts taking an interest in Christianity. He saw the pagan priests in their beautiful vestments, and he decides, well, the Christian church, they should look at least as good. So he gave special vestments to the leaders of the churches. So all of a sudden, the Christian leaders now look like the pagans. And before you know it, people are starting to become Christian, not because they had this deep transformation in their heart, but because they realized, well, the emperor's Christian. I'm going to become like, I'm going to enter in political favor by becoming a Christian. And then you see Christianity declining. You see people starting to baptize babies rather than baptizing believers. You're seeing communion having this sense of special presence. Before you know it, they're making icons and statues of saints and Mary and praying to saints and Mary rather than praying to gods. All of a sudden, authentic Christianity has become utterly diluted. And the Roman Catholic Church emerges in cahoots with the Roman Empire. Now, I'm not saying Roman Catholic people are evil. Many of you are from that background. Many of our leaders are from that background. In fact, the current Pope is a fantastic person. However, you cannot say that a lot of things that have happened in the name of the Roman Catholic Church have had anything to do with God, but have been completely from the devil. Absolutely, it has. You look in the history of the Dark Ages, the Inquisitions led by the popes, where they found authentic believers, they called them heretics, and they killed them in the most horrible ways. Thousands upon thousands of people dying at the hands of inquisitions. Folks, it's the prostitute. It's a total uh, deception. It's a counterfeit of true religion. It's not real religion. It's horrible things happening in the name of religion, but it's not true religion. But it's not just the Roman Catholic Church in the Dark Ages, and at the time of uh, Constantine, it's also other, every other religious system that has emerged to take people away from authentic faith in Jesus. And that's happened in the name of Protestantism as well. In 1610, Islam raised its head. And you see in the 17th, 7th century, you see Muhammad looking for God. He was living in Mecca, which at the time was the center of pagan religion in the Arab world. And he was looking for God, and he didn't find among the pagans all these idols. He, he was sick and tired of the idols. So he went to the Jews to see if he could find God, but he didn't find God among the Jews. And then he went to the Christians, and all he found among the Christians were priests' investments and statues and idols. And he said, they haven't got it either. They're just as bad as the pagans. And so he has this so-called revelation in which 
he produces the Koran, which actually has a lot of rehashed Old Testament and New Testament accounts alongside so-called revelations. He got those rehashed stories from his time with the Jews and with the Christians. They are not the inspired word of God in the Koran. It is a barbaric mismatch of history, which he has, hundreds of years after the events, rewritten to make Jesus look like a mere prophet and not like the Savior of the world who died on the cross for our sins. I'm not saying I have any problem with Muslim people. In fact, I've got great Muslim friends. But I utterly disagree with the philosophy, which has not come from God. And so Muhammad started this religion. He moved to Medina and it became a state religion. He assassinated, he organized the assassination of his political opponents. Old people who opposed him, he ordered their deaths. He, he, he over the next following years leading up to his own death, it was one war after another, and he, he, he caused the massacre of Christians, of Jews, and of pagans. That's Mohammed, who leads this religion of peace. It's not a religion of peace. According to the Bible, it's a misrepresentation of relationship with God. It's, I would believe it's the prostitute. I also believe in the 1900s, in the name of Protestantism, it's in the 19th century, in, in America, you see the rise of all these cults in the name of Protestantism. And it had nothing to do with God at all. So you see the Jehovah's Witnesses, you see the Mormons and the Latter-day, the Latter-day Saints, you see the Christian scientists who were neither Christian nor scientific, and, and you see the, the, the spiritualists and all these different isms emerging in the name of God, offering people spirituality but denying Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so this prostitute has actually been there all along, and it's appeared, just like the beast has appeared in many forms, in Stalinism, in, in Adolf Hitler, and all these different forms, so also this prostitute has kept rearing its ugly heads, offering people what actually human beings have longed for all along, a relationship with God, and yet they're offered a deception instead. And that's exactly what we're seeing here, contrasted in these verses. And it says in chapter 18, verse 4, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins. What God is saying is, you can't have a prostitute and a wife. You can't dabble with religion or false spirituality and then expect to have an authentic relationship with God. You've got to come out of any system that is purporting to be relationship with God, but has actually got no substance to it at all. God wants you in the real thing. God wants you part of the bride of Christ. Wow. That's heavy. So it's true Christianity. And folks, true Christianity isn't a religion. It's a relationship with God. I don't care two hoots about religion. When I, t- when, when I get into conversation with people and they say, oh, what do you do? I say, oh, I'm a pastor of a church. They might go on and say something like, I'm not religious. And I say, I'm not religious either. I hate religion. I hate religion. It's tons of bad stuff's happening in the name of religion. I'm, I'm not interested in one iota. I don't care if you're religious. They're always the problem. I'm saying have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The only one who died for you. Only religious leader who died for you. The only one who is qualified to die for you. The only one who is sinless, who died in your place on the cross. Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. The only Savior of the world. <laughs> Authentic relationship. So we see this incredible proposal from God to the human race. Ephesians chapter 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. 
Wow, I mean, we, I've seen some pretty bold, dramatic public proposals. Sometimes me and my son are, are season ticket holders uh, in, in a football team, and we go to the matches, and every so often at halftime, you see some bold guy getting down on his knees, in the ha- it's, it's kind of down through the tannoy, and this guy proposes to get married to his girlfriend. And you really hope, mate, I hope, I just hope in this moment that she says yes, because like there's 20,000 people watching, okay? And she says yes, and everyone cheers, right? Or, or you, see, you see it kind of in a, in a restaurant, where in the middle of the restaurant, all of a sudden, a guy gets down on his knees, and says, no way, he's proposing. Or you see it like, really romantically on the Jeremy Kyle show, where you know, with a couple, they, they've been trying to kill each other, and now, oh no, I actually don't want to kill you anyone, I want to marry you, and then they propose. It's beautiful, beautiful, so romantic. That's the way to do it, folks. But there's nothing compared to the proposal that Jesus made, this bold public proposal. Jesus on a cross, as he hung there with his arms wide open, he proposes to the human race. And on that cross, he says, I do, to the human race. And he's inviting you to say, well, do you say I do as well? Do you say, okay, Jesus, I'm going to take you on. I'm going to become yours. Jesus Christ hung and died on a cross. It was the greatest public proposal ever. And now the ball is in your court. Will you say, I do? Have you said, I do? I don't care if your parents were Christians. Have you decided to follow Jesus? I'm not caring if you come to church. It's not about religion. That won't save you. Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Christianity is the only world religion in which God became a man and died for his enemies so that they could become his bride. Man's attempt to get to God is religion. God coming to man is Christianity. And then there's the big day. It says in Revelation chapter 19 now, after this I heard what sounded like a roar of a great multitude. I was at the Hearts Hibs Derby on Saturday and there was a lot of roars of the great multitude. But they weren't worshipping. But it was loud. And I can imagine that volume multiplied by billions of people. The roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our gods, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute, false religion, who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. You know, this prostitute kept human beings distracted enough not to realize the true relationship they could have with God. And he has avenged on on her the blood of his servants, at the, name of, at the hand of false religion, so many true believers have died. And again, they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke of her, from her goes up forever and ever. Then the 24 elders, which represents God's people through all time, and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who is seated on the throne, and cried, Amen! Hallelujah! Verse 6, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like loud peals of thunder and shouting, Hallelujah! For the Lord God Almighty, omnipotent, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. The fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Amazing. Mick Jagger, lead singer of the Rolling Stones, he said this, Jesus Christ is fantastic, but I don't like the church. Well, Jesus would disagree with you, Mick Jagger. Jesus thinks the church is glorious. He calls the church his bride. 
He's given everything for the church. So listen, I know that she ain't perfect. I know that. Boy, oh boy, I mean, you've seen yourselves. Seriously, we're a mess. But I'm telling you, you're really special to God. He gave everything for you. He is in love with you, and there will be an ultimate relationship, an ultimate meeting between you and God at the end of time. That's where things are heading, this ultimate moment. And here, four times we see hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Say hallelujah. And it's only four times in the New Testament the word hallelujah appears. It's a Hebrew word. It only appears in the Old Testament. Apart from here, four times, and four times only, does it appear in the New Testament. I think it's saying that all the fulfillment, all the expectation of the Old Testament is fulfilled here in this ultimate moment where God's people meet their gods in this eternal union with him. And they declare hallelujah. Jackie Pullinger, uh, maybe you've read her book, Chasing the Dragon. She does an amazing work in Hong Kong Uh, with people who are recovering drug addicts and prostitutes and people who are just going through the darkest darkness that this world has to offer. And she tells a story of a 72-year-old lady called Alfreda. And Alfreda had spent decades, decades, most of her life as a prostitute and as a heroin addict She could no longer inject her arms or legs because she'd used every vein. She was now injecting her back with the heroin when Jackie Pullinger found her. And she could no longer work as a prostitute because she was so old. So she sat outside the brothel using a stick to move the sewer along just to keep the place more presentable. A total horrible situation this lady was living in. Used and abused all her life. And Jackie Pullinger met her, told her about Jesus. It helped her overcome her addiction and brought her to live in one of Jackie Pullinger's houses where people can come and recover from crazy lives. And she has this full recovery, falls in love with gods, set free from her drugs, and now as a 72-year-old, she gets a boyfriend. <laughs> and the boyfriend was 75 years old. He was called Little Wan. And Alfreda, the 72-year-old, and Little Wan got married. And Jackie Pullinger said... It was the wedding of the decade because this former prostitute and heroin addict walked down the aisle in white, cleansed, forgiven, and transformed by the love of Jesus Christ. Isn't that a beautiful picture? The Bible says the linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Just to be really clear in this one, you're not saved by your work for God. You're saved by his work for you. Okay, you're not saved by works, but you are saved for works, for good works which he prepared in advance for you to walk in. And all over this world, the bride of Christ, it ain't perfect, but I'm telling you, there wouldn't be many aid organizations if it wasn't for the bride of Christ. There wouldn't be very much fresh water around this world if it wasn't for the bride of Christ digging wells. There wouldn't much healthcare systems all over the civilized world if it wasn't for the bride of Christ, you rising up. You look at your history, you'll discover it's the bride of Christ that has made this world bearable. We've been the salt to stop the meat going off. We've been the light that's brought that light in the darkness. It's been the bride of Christ. This amazing thing. So Mick Jagger, Jesus would disagree with you. He loves the bride of Christ. And we're clothed with this white linen, which is the righteous acts of the saints. And then it says in chapter 19, verse 11, I saw standing in heaven, I saw standing, heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse. 
The rider is called faithful and true. And with justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like a blazing fire. And on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but him, he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is the word of God. This is Jesus Christ. And this king's robe is dipped in his own blood. He shed his blood. There's no king like this king. There's no king who would leave his throne to die on behalf of his subjects. No king. There's no king who would leave his throne who would die on behalf of his enemies. There is no king like this king. And yet he's the ultimate king. He's the awesome king. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on the white horses, dressed in fine linen. Who are the armies of heaven? Well, do you know what? I think, I think it's talking about us. Dressed in fine linen. It's the same picture. It's us, the people of God. You see, I do believe there will be a rapture, but I don't think it'll happen. And then years and years later, the eventual the end of the world will come. No, no. The Bible talks about there's going to be a trumpet. The people of God will be caught up. Those who are alive and those who are dead before will be raised and will be caught up and instantly changed. And then we'll be a part of that entourage. It will be on judgment day. It'll be a sudden moment where this caught up will be happening and we will come with Jesus in this arrival point. The armies of heaven will follow him. Riding horses, fine linen, white and clean, were dressed in coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which he will strike down the nations. Jesus' judgment will be based on his word. And he will rule them with the iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The one who died for the world will also judge the world. You see, his judgment doesn't preclude his love. His, his wrath doesn't contradict his loving passion. He is a God of wrath, absolutely. He wouldn't be God if he wasn't. He wouldn't be just if he ignored sin. And yet he's a God of incredible, immense, radical love to die for the people who have threat of wrath hanging over their heads. He wants to forgive, not to judge. He wants to show mercy, not judgment. And here we see Jesus coming. Do you know there were over 300 prophecies predicting Jesus' first coming into this world? 300 prophecies. About 324 prophecies in the Old Testament predicting how Jesus would come into this world 2,000 years ago. He fulfilled every one of those prophecies in his first coming. But did you know that there are eight times that number of prophecies predicting his second coming? Very clear. Right through Scripture, the predictions are there. There's an inscription. Uh, not many people know about it. It's in, it's in the inside of the dome in Capitol Hill in Washington, in the Capitol in Washington. And uh, it's a quote by Alfred Tennyson. And this is what it says. Here's a picture of it. It says this. One God, one law, one element. And one far off divine event to which the whole creation moves. There is an ultimate event that everything is moving towards. Just as he appointed a day in which he created the world. He also appointed a day 2300 B.C., when he judged the world in a flood. And he appointed a day when a virgin would have a child in Bethlehem. And he appointed the day when you were born. In your mother's womb, he knit you together. And so also he has appointed, it says he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world. It says in Acts 17, he's fixed that day. It's already in place. It's not in our diaries. It's in his diary. So how will he return? Well, first of all, he'll return personally. John 14, 3, Jesus said, I go and prepare a place for you and I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. He knows you personally. 
He, know, he knows the billions of people on earth, but he knows you. He knows you. He knows every detail. About, he knows the number of hairs in your head. He knows you. He's coming back for you personally. Secondly, he will return physically. Acts 1.11, while the disciples, after Jesus had died on the cross and risen again, they were with him on the Mount of Olives as he ascended. And it says, this, and the angel appeared to the disciples after having seen Jesus ascend back to the Father. And the angel said, this same Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you saw him go into heaven. In other words, Jesus Christ physically ascended into heaven. There is a man on the throne of this universe, folks. A human being, one of us. And yet he's fully God and fully man. That's incredible. He's on the throne of the universe and he will physically, bodily return to earth. He will return visibly. Revelation 1.7. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierce him. He will return unexpectedly. Matthew 24.36. But about that day and hour, no one knows, only the Father. Now, many people have tried predicting that day. Fools. That's dumb. The Bible says no one knows. Jehovah's Witnesses predicted he would come in 1914. They were wrong. And 1915. They were wrong. Then again in 1918, 1920, 1925, 41, 75, and 1990. Never become a Jehovah's Witness, folks. They were so wrong. So many people have tried to predict Jesus Christ's return. Jesus said, no one knows the day or the hour. It says in Matthew 24, 44, so you also must be ready. You don't know when he's coming, but you've got to be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. So if you're not expecting him just now, well, it's kind of like that. Who then is the faithful and wise servant who the master has put in charge of his servants in his household to give them food at their proper time? It would be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. See what I do every, every week when I'm preaching and through the week when I'm training church planters and tonight when I'm preaching through in Destiny, Glasgow and when, I, when I'm preaching and God called me to do this. So I'm just going to keep doing this. And it's, it's hard. It's hard graft. It's hard work. It's a lot of re- research and preparation. I don't, it's, for me, it's not a job. It's a calling. If I, I get paid for it. What a privilege. But I did this before as if I paid for it. And if the money went, I don't care. I believe, because my allegiance is to God and God's called me to do this. What's God called you to do? What life has God called you to live? What is the thing God's asked you to do on earth? One thing. What's he asked you to do? It doesn't need to be dramatic, but it needs to be accurate. What are you here to do? What are you here to do with your life? This is, hey, Peter, I don't have time for all this stuff. What? You don't have time for what? You're so busy with life that you don't have time for calling. You are here for one purpose. What's the purpose of God for your life? Are you living that purpose? John Wesley, the famous preacher, was asked one day by a lady at the end of a service. She, was, she asked him, Mr. Wesley, if you were to die tomorrow night at midnight, or if Jesus was to return tomorrow night at midnight, how would you spend your next few hours? And John Wesley said this, why? Just as I intended to spend it right now. I shall preach this evening in Gloucester and again tomorrow morning, and then I shall rise to Tewkesbury, preach in the afternoon, meet the societies of small groups in the evening, and then I'll go to my friend Martin's house and we will converse and pray with the family. As usual, I will retire to my room at 10 o'clock and commend myself to my heavenly father, lie down and rest and wake up in glory. 
In other words, live the life you're meant to be living. So that if someone asks you that question, what would you do if Jesus was coming back? Your answer should be exactly what I'm going to do today. You should be living every day in the light of eternity. Living with a, no one knows when he's going to come. Living with that expectation. Only when you think you could die at any moment can you fully live. Only when you know Jesus could come at any moment are you fully alive and you make the most of your life. Wake up. Some of you are dithering your way through life and some of you are so blinded because of your own stuff you're going through. Folks, the devil will keep throwing stuff at you to keep you juggling everything enough that you forget the purpose of God. It's time to get moving with the purpose of God. There's no better time than now. Don't wait for the perfect circumstances. God has called you. Live for Jesus Christ. So we don't know the day or the hour, but let me say there are signs, and here's three sure signs of his return. Three certain signs of his return. These are ones you can all figure out. Not like the kind of mysterious ones that they're debatable. These are clear. Number one, global, global gospel impact. Matthew 24, 14. This gospel of the kingdom, Jesus said, will be preached to the whole world as a testament to all nations. And then, say then. And then the end will come. Jesus will not return until the gospel has impacted all nations. And you know what? We're nearly there. If you look at the people who do the research on mission impact and spread of the church, we are now penetrating areas all over this world that were previously hostile and close to the gospel. In many places, Muslims are having visions of Jesus where the the regime said you cannot come as missionaries and preach here. If you dare, we'll behead you. Muslims are having visions of Jesus and God still brings the gospel to them despite the missionaries not being allowed to operate there. All over this world, the gospel is spreading. The second coming will only happen when the first comings had full impact on earth. Our gospel, our message, isn't preaching the second coming. There's no hope or salvation in believing in the second coming. The hope of salvation comes from believing in the first coming. And that's the message we preach, the good news, that Jesus came into this world He died for sinners like us. He paid the price for all our sins so we wouldn't have to. On the third day, he rose again. By believing in him, you can have eternal life. That's the gospel. And when that gospel, when the first coming has had full impact on earth, then and only then will the second coming happen. Second sure sign of Jesus' return. Israel will turn to Jesus. Romans chapter 11, 25 to 26. Israel, that's the Jewish people, physical descendants of Abraham, has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. The indication is this. As the gospel is spreading all over the world, there will come a point where the full number of the Gentiles has come in. I think we're kind of nearly there, folks, to be honest. I think it was signified by the 1940s events when Israel became a state. I think they returned to the lands, not not because there's anything special ultimately about the lands, but they returned to the land to meet the God of the land, Just as they rejected the God of the lands, they were expelled from the land in 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed. So also the return to the land, it's like a mirror image, precedes their return to God. So the fullness of the Gentiles will come in and all Israel will be saved. There'll be a large-scale awakening among Jewish peoples believing in Jesus. They won't get saved by believing the Ten Commandments, some old covenant. That's obsolete, Hebrew says. It says they'll get saved through believing in Jesus Christ, the one who died for them, the one whom they pierced. Jesus said to them in Matthew 23, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There will come a moment when the Jewish peoples, before they see Jesus, they will say, 
wow, you are the king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then Jesus will return. 55 years ago, there were no messianic congregations in Israel. Today, there are over 300 messianic congregations, believers, followers of Jesus in the land of Israel. It would be like the brothers who rejected their brother Joseph way back. And they rejected Joseph, the one who claimed to be the ruler over them. They rejected him. But then in a time of famine, in the time of greatest need, they came and bowed the knee before the same one they rejected, realizing, not realizing initially, but then suddenly realizing he was their brother. So also the Jewish people rejected their brother, Jesus, an offspring of Abraham. And one day they will recognize him as the king. And the third sign that will be fulfilled before Jesus returns is church growth. Isaiah 2, verse 2, and I could have chosen a pile of my favorite verses from all over the Bible. Isaiah 2, verse 2 says, and it shall come about in the last days, last days, before the return of Jesus, last days, that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as chief of the mountains. The New Testament is clear that the house of God is no longer a physical building in Jerusalem. It is the people of God where he dwells among us by his spirit. The mountain of the house of the Lord, us, the church, will be established as chief of the mountains and raised above the hills and the nations will stream to it. I don't believe everyone will be saved. but I believe the church of Jesus Christ will be the biggest and greatest thing on planet earth prior to the return of Jesus Christ. We're involved with something that's destined to become the biggest thing on earth. The church of Jesus Christ. Jesus isn't returning for a skinny bride. A thin bride. Jesus is coming for a plump bride. Say amen. amen. He's coming for a plump bride. It says in Revelation 7 verse 9, a great multitude that no one could count from every tribe, nation, people, language. So get inviting. Hey, Easter Sunday's coming invite your friends and family. Don't miss, hey, Jesus could come any minute. Don't miss any opportunity. And who have you invited to Easter? Pack this place out. Downstairs, cafe, balcony, let's pack the place to the walls. If you're free, in fact, be free this afternoon. Go out in the streets, take leaflets. We'll only get a few thousand leaflets out. If there's an army of you going out in half an hour, we could get them all out. Just go for it. Make time. Make time. Because certain things are more important than other things. Jesus Christ is coming back. Get inviting. We're not inviting people to religion. We're inviting people to relationship. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you describe how you want to interact with people in the most intimate terms. You tell us that we are the bride, that you're the groom, and that one day, the big day will come where your people will meet you and be with you for all eternity. And next week, we're looking forward to seeing what that actually looks like. But right now, we celebrate the fact that you've rescued us in the middle of a world. You've rescued many of us from deception. Many of us thought we were religious, but we had no relationship, and you saved us. And God, here we are, and we say thank you so much for your incredible, unconditional, radical love for us. Blessed be your name. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad for the wedding of the Lamb has come and her bride has made herself ready. 
God, we glorify you. History is going somewhere, and it's good. So today, God, we, just, we want to just give ourselves afresh to you, God. Worship you, adore you, and live for you. We don't want to wake up some point when we're old and realize we didn't make the most of every moment. Help us to maximize our days and our hours and our moments as if Jesus was returning at any moment. Thank you for the privilege of living for you, God. All right, in his presence, every one of you, just pray your prayers to God. Wake up. Live alert. Live for him. Make every moment count. While people are praying, I'm aware there might well be some some of you here today you might even be religious but you don't yet have a relationship with God make the greatest decision of your life I'm not even asking you to become a member of this church you'd be welcome to it's not about that there's lots of good churches out there it's about relationship with God do you know God if you don't yet know God this is your moment trust in Jesus who died for you accept him as your savior and what will happen as you do that is a miracle will happen in your soul it's called being born again God will come and reach down and forgive your sin and give you a new life an eternal life if you want that relationship with God this is your moment pray this prayer with me just now I want you to be bold in this one stop tiptoeing around this issue be bold Jesus wasn't ashamed to die on a cross for you So don't you be ashamed to boldly place your faith in him. Under your breath, pray this prayer with me just now. If that's you and you're saying, I want a relationship with God, pray this prayer with me just now and mean it with all your heart. Dear Lord God, thank you for your love for me. Today, I make a choice. In your presence, I choose to become a follower of yours, Jesus. I believe you died for me on the cross so I could be forgiven. I believe you rose again and today I give my life to you. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. I want to know you now, God. Jesus, be Lord of my life. Thanks for hearing my prayer.